So, this is it, friends. The last episode of the season. Savour it, and we'll start working on the next lot. In the past, in the path of your light, in the dark of the cold moon. Welcome, folks, to another episode of our Two Scientists podcast, which comes to you again from the world of beer in Tampa. Uh, our guest this evening is Chris Whelan. How are you, Chris? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. We're very pleased to have you here. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your, your background, your training, and how you got to where you are, because I understand you're adjunct faculty at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Well, at the moment, I'm actually visiting faculty at the university. So I've been I adjunct see. for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, but at the moment, I have a, a paid position as a visiting research associate professor. OK. And uh, so I became adjunct, I think, in 1991. And uh, that was arranged through a colleague that I met when I had a position at a private institution in the suburbs of Chicago called the Morton Arboretum. And there I met uh, my colleague, Joel Brown. And I helped arrange Joel to get a research associate position at the Arboretum. And sort of in exchange, he got me adjunct professor at UIC. Okay. And we've remained colleagues and friends ever since. Yeah, Joel actually did another one of our podcasts called The Squirrel Whisperer. That's how I heard. <laughs> that was very enjoyable. So I, I used to joke with my daughters that, uh, that Joel, we could refer to Joel as Mr. Squirrel. <laughs> and at the time, my main study species was a bird called the wood thrush. And I said, and likewise, you can refer to me as Mr. Woodthrush. <laughs> So tell us, how is it you ended up working on birds? So it was not actually by design. Mm -hmm. So I grew up for, for as long as I can remember, I had a fascination with birds. And, uh, but I grew up in a well-educated but sort of literary family, so there was no real science background mm -hmm. in any of my older siblings or my parents. And so, for instance, we did not own binoculars in my household. I did not own binoculars until I got to college and bought them myself. And we had no guides such as the Peterson Guide to Birds or things like that. So we did have a number of encyclopedias at home and we had a small size book that was a compendium of Audubon's Birds of America. And those were sort of my field guides growing up, but again without binoculars. So I grew up in the country, kind of fairly remote in southwest mm -hmm. Wisconsin. and. When not doing chores around the property, I spent as much time up in the woods just kind of being a nature guy as I could. So I'd fill up a, a canteen with water and I could be gone from breakfast till supper time, just hiking around the, the hills and the valleys in what's called the Driftless Area of, of uh, Southwest Wisconsin. And um, when I got to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I, as happens when you're living in the dorm and you meet people and you say oh what's your major what's your major and so forth I met a guy when I asked that question replied wildlife ecology mm -hmm. this is at the University of Wisconsin Madison I had no idea that there was such a major as wildlife ecology I said wow I had no idea such a thing existed and so sometime during my freshman year I went to the department and talked to one of the receptionists who made a an appointment for me to meet a professor in the department. And when I met that professor, it turned out he was the perfect mentor for me. He was a bird ecologist who specialized in recovering endangered bird species. So when mm -hmm. I walked up 
his door had a big poster that said something like bird sex therapist <laughs> on it. And the reason for that is that his name was Stan Temple and, and Dr. Temple um, managed captive breeding programs. So for instance, he helped devise the captive breeding program that brought the peregrine falcon back. Mm -hmm. um, and he worked with endangered species uh, all over the world. I was very impressed when I met with him and talked with him about what his research was and made the decision right then and there that I was going to go from a non-declared major to a wildlife ecology major. And I've never looked back. Uh -huh. So uh, obviously you started to do research, but I'm going to throw back the name of your book that you've co-written, Why Birds Matter. Can you tell us why that is? So why do birds matter? Yep. Uh, birds matter for a lot of different reasons, and this particular book takes a utilitarian approach to answering the question. So we can say that birds matter because uh, they're living sentient beings, mm -hmm. so they, they have intrinsic value, uh, but they also have a utilitarian value. So as it turns out that many birds perform ecological functions that in performing those functions, they actually benefit humans. Mm -hmm. One such example is pest control. So many birds eat insects that eat the plants that we like to eat ourselves. So from the plant's perspective, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if you're, looking, if you're taking a plant perspective on this and say you're an oak tree and you're being attacked by herbivorous caterpillars mm -hmm. and insect, insectivorous birds are attacking the herbivorous caterpillars that are attacking you, you can think of the, those insectivorous birds as sort of the French Foreign Legion that's out there destroying those hordes of consuming herbivorous insects. Yep. And so that's one of the ways that birds are actually bene can benefit humans. Uh, so the book actually covers um, pest control services, seed dispersal services, pollination services, scavenging services, nutrient cycling services, biogeochemical nutrient cycling, um, as well as uh, what we call ecosystem engineering. So many birds, for instance, um, will excavate cavities and trees, and then that provides homes for many other things. And many other birds will excavate cavities in, in the ground, um, and that will also provide homes for other species, some of which, some of whom actually also benefit humans. So these are all, you know, myriad ways that birds through their ecological functions benefit humans. Yep. So you have a particular favorite bird that you study, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I do. My favorite bird that I ever studied is a very small little guy called the black-throated green warbler. And I'm not exactly sure that I could tell you why it's my favorite bird, but they're just really in-your-face little eight-gram guys who just are absolutely fearless. So often when I have spoken to uh, grade school age kids, which are really, it's always fun to speak to young kids like that about birds. And inevitably, at least one kid will say, what's your favorite bird? And I just said it, black-throated green warbler. Yeah. But inevitably, another kid will say, what bird, if you could be any bird, what bird would you want to be? Would it be that bird? And interestingly enough, no, if I could choose to be a bird, it would not be a black-throated green warbler. They're my favorite bird for various reasons, but if I could be a bird, it would probably be a barn swallow. And the reason for that is I think they are possibly the most uh, exquisite flyers in the bird world. And I think what infatuated me to begin with with birds, although I'm 
dreadfully fearful of heights is the fact that they can fly. And uh -huh. I always thought it would be so cool to be able to fly. And if you look at birds flying, I think there is no better flying machine than a barn swallow. But I worked with the black-throated green warbler in captivity, so I would capture them in nets in the forest. I would bring them into aviaries that I built in the biology building where I did my PhD research. And then I did controlled experiments with them in these aviary flight cages. And I, I ran a, a number of different bird species through these same sorts of experiments, but these guys were absolutely my favorites. They mm -hmm. just were in your face, um, just really cool, fearless little guys. And was it, what was it about them that you were studying? I was interested in their foraging aptitudes and behaviors. So I was interested in how sort of their behavior would interact with the with the complex three-dimensional structure of a forest in uh, affecting their encounter rates with different types of insects and hence their ability to uh, detect and capture those insects and provide thereby ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, while you've been in Tampa recently, you mentioned that you were in Lettuce Lake Park. That's um, right. Tell us a little bit about what you saw there. And you were describing a particular app to us as well. Right. So um, this was my second visit to Lettuce Lake. So I rode a colleague's bike over there from uh, the apartment we share. And, um, and when I got there, I used this app that is called eBird.org. And this is a free app that you can download. It's, um, I think it's managed by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. And it's a very cool app. Um, when you set it up, you can have it so that it will detect through GPS in, the, in your smartphone where you are. So for instance, I, when I called it up, it said, and I said, I want to do a checklist. It said, do you want to do a checklist where you are? And I said, yes. So they figured out I was in Lettuce Lake. And then they said, do you want us to download a checklist of the birds known to be at Lettuce Lake for you? And I said, yes. And, um, and so they downloaded this complete checklist of birds known to inhabit Lettuce Lake. And then as I walk along, when I see a bird, I can go to the checklist and highlight the bird and then indicate how many individuals of that bird species I saw. And then I could do this as I went along and at the end of the day um, I could I have the option to then submit the checklist and then it becomes part of the public domain and this is really cool and and people who you know go to places like Lattice Lake or any other such place uh, really do the scientific community uh, a service by uploading these lists because there are scientists who now sort of make a living by going to these sorts of lists and then mining the data that are made available from these lists to learn about changes in bird distributions over time, uh, relative abundances of birds in different geographic locations. It's just an amazing tool. But it then, personally, at the end of the day, I have a record of all the bird species I saw while I was there. That's very cool. And it's very cool. <laughs> that actually reminds me of another podcast that we did with a lady called Andrea Wiggins, who we spoke to about citizen science, but she's also a big fan of birds. So I'm sure this is something that she would definitely approve of. Uh, she probably knows of it and may also have used it herself. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those citizen science uh, projects that's really well known around the world. Given that you live in the north and you're currently visiting the south, 
Um, have you been across much of the US and been able to see the difference in diversity in bird populations and how do they vary as you go around the country? So I've been through much of the lower 48 states of the United States. I've probably spent the least amount of time in the Southwest. I grew up in the upper Midwest uh, and I did my graduate work in New England. Um, so those are the two parts of the country I've spent the most time in. I've been to Florida a number of occasions from the time I was in high school. So one of my older brothers, he was in the Navy and he was stationed in Jacksonville and he married a woman from Jacksonville and he got married in Jacksonville. So we were down, so my first trip to Florida was for their marriage. Uh, and then I've been to Florida several times <clears throat> since then. I've been to the Northwest a number of times and I've been to Alaska um, at least twice. And as with most everything other than I think zooplankton and phytoplankton, birds uh, tend to be more diverse as you get closer to the tropics. So there are many more bird species to be seen in a state like Florida than there are typically in Wisconsin. And then of course in Wisconsin at this time, uh, we have winter, of course Florida has winter too, but as a Wisconsinite <laughs> it sure doesn't seem like it to me. Um, and the birds would tell you that it is nothing like a Wisconsin winter in Florida at this time of year. So many of our birds that we would have in the breeding season in the summer in Wisconsin are here uh, enjoying winter in Florida. And um, So the birds, the snowbirds? Uh, <laughs> well, there are birds that are known as snowbirds, but not, not these particular ones. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there are, there are there are birds called the now they're called the northern junco that are they're affectionately known as snowbirds and these guys nest way north in Canada and so a mild winter for them is uh, say a Wisconsin winter <laughs> so I, I don't know actually how far south in the winter time they go they probably get down at least to the Mason-Dixon line or maybe farther south than that I certainly haven't seen any in Florida mm -hmm. so how will they have responded to this recent... What, what on earth was it called? The bomb cyclone? Will that have had any effect on kind of their, their movements or their patterns? Well, so uh, extreme weather events like that will almost certainly cause some mortality. Mm -hmm. So if... And probably more so in places like New England where it really hit hard. But for a lot of birds in events like that, they can already be sort of living on the margin. So their, their fat supplies may be, they may be somewhat marginal. And when you get, say, like Buffalo, New York, had something like 56 inches of snow in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Uh, 48 hours maybe, whatever it was, it was extraordinary. That covers up all the food. And if you have enough fat to, say, hold up and live for 24 hours and hope that things get better, you're basically toast under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certainly going to be some mortality. I haven't heard of massive uh, evidence of mortality from this, this particular s storm. But yeah, anytime there's there events like that, there's going to be some mortality. There's going to, some birds are going to be stressed, other, other, other attacks besides birds as well. So it seems a natural question to ask after weather is, how is the behavior of birds changing long term? Do we know yet? We do know there's some evidence that some bird species are changing various behaviors with respect to climate change. Mm -hmm. So some of it is uh, remarkably rapid. So we're seeing some evidence that there's evolution of uh, differences in migration and navigation patterns that we know happen to be hardwired. 
So this is evidence of strong natural selection leading to genetic changes in navigational abilities. Um, a study that I'm doing with some colleagues at the Field Museum in Chicago and the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago uh, examines nesting phenology of birds in the upper Midwest based on really old egg and nest records that the Field Museum has that date to 1873. Oh, wow with modern nesting activities of birds that were collected primarily by a colleague and I. We've got about 3,000 modern nest records dating from 1989 through about 2014. And we can show uh, that of the 73 bird species for which we have sufficient data to analyze, I believe it's something like around 30% of them are nesting significantly earlier now mm -hmm. than they did in historic times. And what is surprising is that those species that are nesting earlier show no strong pattern with respect to migration. That is, there's no strong pattern with whether they're year-round residents, short-distance migrants, or long-distance migrants. So you might expect that the year-round residents who are there and experiencing the earlier springs would be the ones who would be best able to respond. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing about similar proportions of all of those three migratory strategies responding to the earlier springs um, without regard to the different migration strategies. So, so that was, to me, that I think to all of us actually, that was a surprise. Yeah. So we know that, that, that these changes are, are happening. Mm -hmm. So I think David has actually come up with a question that I was thinking, but he's probably put it a bit more eloquently since he's had a chance to write it down. As climate change impacts food and ecological sources that birds need, and as birds perform so many important roles in ecosystems that they inhabit, what do you think the impact of climate change through birds will be on the ecosystem? Well, that's a, that is really a great question, and one of the initial fears that uh, bird biologists had uh, with respect to climate change is that if there's earlier leaf out, which means that the insects that are eating the leaves who provide the bulk of the food for the insectivorous birds that are about 60% of the birds on the planet worldwide, if that happens and there's a disconnect between the timing of migration and the timing of nesting of birds and these and the phenology of the leafing out and the, and the emergence of the um, the herbivorous caterpillars and, and other other insects that eat the leaves, then there will be massive nest failure amongst those birds. But luckily, as as I just said, we know that at least some birds are, are also switching their nesting to earlier dates. So I think the, the doomsday scenario of a huge sort of disconnect between what's going on in terms of the leaves and the insects and the birds is probably not manifesting in the most dire situation that we could imagine it possibly happening. Mm -hmm. You also study, obviously, as you said, things like seed dispersal. Presumably Correct. that would also be affected by... Right, so the other, the other place that this comes into play is in say, plants that produce fruits who are consumed by birds and then the birds um, perform a mutualistic function by dispersing the seeds. Are these the frugivores? I learned a yes. new word today. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in temperate latitudes most of the plants that produce fleshy fruits who are consumed by birds produce them in the fall. Mm -hmm. So there's very little fruit production of, of those types at high latitudes. Al almost none in the spring, very little in the summer, most of it's in the fall. 
And in fact, there are papers that have shown that the bulk of that fruit maturation seems to be timed to coincide with fall southbound migration of birds. Mm -hmm. This is also a time of year, so you're going into the fall, temperatures are dropping, so insect populations are declining, and fruit abundance is increasing. And birds are, many birds are actually seasonally insectivorous. So as insect populations decline, they switch from eating insects to eating fruit. Uh -huh. That's very interesting because it is accompanied by massive switches in digestive physiology. Mm -hmm. So digesting a fruit is very different from digesting an, uh, an insect. Sure. And so what we do know is that as fall temperatures change, there are going to be some differences in the maturation patterns in these fall maturing fruits. And so there could also be a disconnect between the migration patterns of birds and the maturation patterns of the fruits that kind of support the, the southbound migration. Uh, David would also like to point out that the government has shut down as of yesterday. <laughs> And he was wondering whether that has any impact on you and your work. Not immediately. No. So the government shutdown will not affect me uh, in any immediate sense that I can think of. Um, but certainly there are a lot of federal biologists that are bird biologists. So within the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, within the U.S. Forest Service, within the United States Geological Surveys, many really outstanding bird biologists are employed by those agencies and then those agencies also are very critical in um, doing things like say providing licenses for um, people who go out and say duck hunt or mm -hmm. hunt waterfowl right now I say it doesn't affect me because I don't have a bird banding permit mm -hmm. I did at one time but I haven't needed one for some time <clears throat> and so I turned mine in but the USGS, the Bird Banding Laboratory, is a federal laboratory. It's operated by the United States uh, Geological Survey, the USGS. So the Bird Banding Laboratory is shut down. And uh, what that means is that if you need to get a banding permit, uh, you can't. If you need to get a new supply of bands. Um, so so for, those of, for those who don't understand what bird banding is, bands are these little, they're small aluminum bracelets, if you will, rings. Uh, so in fact, the the English refer to it as not bands, but rings. Uh, so you don't bird band, you bird ring in England. And uh, each of these bands has inscribed in it a unique number that will allow you to identify the bird that that band was put on. And then if that bird is recovered at a later date, either alive or dead, you can record that number, send it into the banding laboratory, mm -hmm. and then we can learn something about the life history of that bird. So for instance, I could band, say, an American robin in the Morton Arboretum outside of Chicago, and somebody in Tampa at Lettuce Lake could put up a mist net and capture that very robin. Notice it has a band, read the information on the band, send that information into the bird banding laboratory, who will then write to me and say, a bird that you banded, an American robin that you banded with this number on this date in this location was recovered at Lettuce Lake, and we'll know how long it lived from the time I banded it to the time it was caught at Lettuce Lake. We know it traveled at least that distance mm -hmm. and uh, so we gain a lot of information about the life history of birds through these efforts. Uh, but but all, everything involving bird banding is shut down because because of the government shutdown. Mm -hmm. uh, there isn't a lot of hunting that goes on at this time of year mm -hmm. but if it were the fall that would shut down the National Wildlife Refuge system and that could disrupt 
all of the people who go out and hunt waterfowl. Mm -hmm. This is an industry that's probably worth something on the order of 10 to 15 billion dollars a year in the United States. Oh wow, really? Yeah, yes. So in fact, one of the ecosystem services that birds supply is called cultural services. And these come about through things like hunting, bird watching, and just you know other sorts of wildlife viewing. And I think that it's estimated that overall, um, th these are kind of old numbers now, but the last it was tallied up, it was something like $36 billion a year. And so this includes things like buying bird seed, buying binoculars, buying bird feeders, buying bird baths, mm -hmm. going to places and you know spending money to get to places to go birding. Like I biked to Lettuce Lake yesterday, um, but if I drove there, I would have had to pay $2 to mm -hmm. get in the gate. You could calculate how much gas I spent and, and so forth. So people have done those kinds of calculations and have estimated that you know birds culturally in that sense are worth about $36 billion a year in the United States. That's a crazy amount. Yes, it's quite like, a large amount. Yeah, I never would have imagined that. Um, so while we're imagining you know, birds and how much they're contributing, what if you can even start to conceive this idea, would a world without birds look like? A sad place. <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> you know, one of the things, and I, I, I just sent a colleague um, an email the other day, and I remarked that every time I look up in the sky when I'm walking around Tampa, I see just unbelievable numbers of black and turkey vultures. Mm -hmm. uh, turkey vultures, black vultures are carrion eaters, they're scavengers. And I said, I just can't imagine what is supporting the how much carrion yeah. is out there to support. We wonder that too. The, the number <laughs> of these of these scavenging birds that are always in the air over Tampa. So actually, people have done experiments where they have, they say, picked up roadkill, and then moved it to someplace new and placed it out, and then recorded how long it takes for it to disappear. It's amazingly quickly how fast it disappears. These animals are really superlative at finding carrion. Mm -hmm. So if there were no carrion consuming bird species, the carcasses would start to build up and build up and build up. Now, as it turns out, there's some very interesting work that's been published looking at sort of the competition between microbial scavengers and vertebrate scavengers. and. Um, the premier vertebrate scavengers are, in fact, all the vultures and, and um, um, condors uh, of the world. I think there's 28 species or mm -hmm. so uh, worldwide. And the old world vultures are different taxonomically from the new world vultures. They're quite separate taxonomic groups. Um, but they've converged evolutionarily on very similar morphologies and lifestyles and so forth. And the microbes probably would not be able to do the job that these incredibly efficient vertebrate scavengers are able to do. So one of the things you would notice first is the buildup of dead things all mm -hmm. around us and the stench that comes with that. So we know that this is true because in South Asia, because of a medicine that was used in the livestock trade called diclofenic, uh, it's an anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. It's used to uh, decrease inflammation in, in cattle and other large livestock. Uh, so this is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. So it turns out that in the 1990s, this drug started being used. And when the cattle die, traditionally what happens in these, this part of the world is the cow would be dragged out far from 
a home in a field, mm -hmm. and they would allow the, the vultures, their four large gyps vultures, the genus gyps vultures that live in this area, and they would clean up the carcass. Well, it turns out that diclofenac remains in the carcass. Mm -hmm. It also turns out that diclofenac is incredibly toxic to vultures. Uh -huh. And the vultures, they're very large birds, so they're about three feet tall. So they're, they're big birds. They underwent about a 95 to 98% population decline oh, in wow. South Asia over about a 10-year period. This led to a massive increase in dead stuff lying around, which led to a population explosion of rats feral dogs and the transmission of rabies and other zoonotic diseases from these animal reservoirs to humans with a price tag on the order of $10 billion over that 10, 10 year period or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact amount of money, but it was a, a huge amount of money on health costs. So I think that would be the first thing we would notice. The next thing we would notice is a profusion of insects. Mm -hmm. So birds are very efficient at keeping insect populations in check, particularly herbivorous insects. So we would start to see damage to our uh, trees and our in our yards and our gardens, and we would start to see damage to our vegetable gardens and other sorts of things. And then we would also see that a lot of fruit are being produced, but they're not being consumed. Mm -hmm. So these fruit would rot on the plant, fall to the ground, and they'll disintegrate there, and they'll uh, cause fungal outbreaks. And uh, so we, I think we would see in a very short order of time a lot of, a lot of uh, very dramatic effects if birds suddenly disappeared from the planet. It sounds like really fun stuff, especially for a place that gets incredibly hot. <laughs> yes, especially for places that get incredibly hot. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's truly grim. Um, so yes, we like birds. We would like them to stick around. Right. So this is a, a kind of a complete aside. Um, I recently read an article by Ed Yong about the mechanism of the hummingbird tongue and the only reason I bring this up is because uh, I was reading online that you'd collaborated with a student, um, a master student whose project was about the hummingbird tongue. Yeah, that's right. That was a fun project. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works? Well, so it, it was thought for more than decades that so they, their tongue bifurcates, mm -hmm. and the tip of it has what are called lemmy, which are kind of like fingers, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it was known that they could kind of curl it into sort of a tube. Yep. And so it was thought that um, they, they imbibed nectar primarily through capillary action. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a graduate student from Colombia. Alejandro. Uh, Alejandro, yeah. Rico Guevara. So Alejandro figured it out. He worked out that it operates very differently. So when the tongue protrudes out of the bill into the nectar tube, it does sort of form a, a tube. But then when it hits the nectar, it has this uh, like a spring-like action. Mm -hmm. And so it, it starts to sort of spring back up like this. And that, and in piecemeal, along the tongue from the tip to the back and what that does is it acts as a micro pump and so they're actually micro pumping the nectar in and this is happening at a rate of something like 10 times a second so this tongue is going uh, extruding out of the bill into the nectar into the bill out of the bill at something like 10 times a second as the bird is hovering mm -hmm. in front of the nectar tube so it's it's imbibing at a rate that is 
you know, much greater than was believed to be possible through capillary action. So I got involved with this because I sort of co-advise a graduate student who, among other things, has interest in hummingbird, let's call them evolutionary technologies, which mm -hmm. would be, say, the, the musculature, the uh, bone structure that allows them to hover, things like the, the tongue structure and so forth. And I got uh, an email one day from a, a master's student in a program at University of Illinois Chicago in the School of Public Health called the Biomedical Visualization Program. It's one of two such programs in the United States. Mm -hmm. They admit something like 20 students a year, and these students are amazingly um, artistic. Yep. Anyway, this student was looking for, she had to illustrate something biological, and she wanted to do something with birds. And so she heard from another student in the program that I had an interest in birds, so she wrote me. And I said, oh yeah, let's, you know, let's talk, and I'll, I'll suggest a number of things. So I was trying to kind of come up with something that would be sort of win-win, would give her a project and could also possibly be used as artwork for the graduate student in our program. Mm -hmm. And so we came up with her illustrating sort of the micro-pumping technique and structure function of the hummingbird tongue. And she did this beautiful poster that won a first place award in a NSF Vizies contest. And... Um, and so it's just it was it was really a wonderful thing, and it was it was a lot of fun for me because I had an, another student that I knew who was also a graduate student at University of Connecticut, where Alejandro was finishing up his PhD. So I used her to kind of get me in touch with Alejandro, and then he he very graciously uh, agreed to look at all of. Uh, Esther's drawings as they were being developed mm -hmm. but we also Esther and I also made trips to the field museum where we would look at hummingbirds um, so like we went there one day and um, somebody in the the bird department said oh well you want to see you want to see hummingbirds I've got a he came out with a bag of frozen ruby-throated hummingbirds there must oh, have well. been 40 <laughs> or 50 of these hummingbirds in this bag that he pulled out of the freezer. So we kind of thawed them out for a little bit and then tried to, you know, look at the tongue so that Esther could see close up what a tongue looked like and that didn't quite do it and so they have something called that they call the wet collection. Mm -hmm. And the Field Museum actually has the largest wet collection of birds, I believe, in the entire world. And this is where they take the, the dead bird and just stick it in a jar of alcohol, uh -huh. the entire bird. And so John Bates, who's uh, the associate curator of birds at the Field Museum, took us down to the wet collection and then pulled out all of these jars of hummingbirds. And some hummingbirds are actually surprisingly big. And mm -hmm. He pulled out a big one and somebody had already pulled the tongue out. We put it under a dissecting microscope and there you could see the tongue in just beautiful detail. And I could see the eureka moment, everything just fit for Esther. She made some drawings there and then went back to the her lab mm -hmm. in her department and then out came the poster. So it took, took about six months of work and many trips to the Field Museum and then many drawings and then she used uh, computer programs to actually do the artwork. But she produced a, a really wonderful uh, and beautiful poster of, of the micro pumping action of the hummingbird tongue. I, I just find the whole thing completely wild. It is. Like, it's <laughs> it so truly much fun. Is.
It is one of those things that does seem a little bit strange because capillary action is akin to like, you know, dipping a straw into exactly. some water and letting it suck up. Like, it doesn't seem like a very efficient form of feeding yourself. The student who did the artwork, by the way, is Esther Ng. Yes. And she is now at the University of Georgia. Ah, wonderful. Well, we'll definitely put that up on our website. So I was wondering, you were saying that for bird banding, you require like the U.S. government to be functioning. So how does it work when a uh, bird crosses the border? Are there um, oh. bird banding in like Mexico or Canada? So great question. One of the oldest conservation-related treaties that the United States has is the, um, what is it called, the Migratory Bird Treaty. And it was passed, I think, in 1903 with Canada and, and Mexico because um, the, so the Fish and Wildlife Service didn't exist at that time. But there were government biologists who realized that birds don't recognize uh, these national borders. <laughs> and many of, I'm putting in quotes now, our birds. So, so yeah, way, way before NAFTA. So it's, 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 it's really an old and very kind of venerated treaty that we have with Mexico and, and, and with Canada. And so we have, that, that kind of stipulates sort of these agreements that we have in terms of managing these uh, birds that cross the borders. The government of Canada will have its own bird banding laboratory. The government of Mexico will have its own bird banding laboratory and its own federal regulations over birding. However, we will recognize, um, say, if a, if a bird is, say, recovered um, as roadkill in the United States and it has a band that was placed on it in Mexico, um, we would then report it to bird banding laboratory, the equivalent in Mexico or Canada would get the information. Yeah, so there's, I think there's full cooperation in that sense. I guess you were talking about uh, birds being useful, but I was wondering, uh, do you have any advice for, say, like, uh, for farmers that can sometimes be a pest, right, for the crows and stuff? Is there a better way to deal with those sort of things, or? So it's Robert was getting at this issue that is known as disservices. So we talk about ecosystem services, we can also talk about disservices. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that nature does to humans that basically cause us harm. And um, in the case of many bird species, um, so for instance, it's, it's observed over and over again, we see these huge flocks of blackbirds. So they can be red-winged blackbirds, uh, common grackles, sometimes European starlings, descend into say wheat fields or corn fields or oat fields or something like that. And the, the appearance is that, oh my God, these birds are just going to denude it of everything that you could possibly harvest from there. And it's, it's actually, when people have gone in and measured what birds are actually consuming, it's a fraction of what you imagine that they are likely to consume. And sometimes it's almost immeasurable. And so what they're actually doing there isn't totally clear. Now certainly under some circumstances, birds can cause some crop damage, and they do cause crop damage. Um, sometimes it's just highly concentrated and in the old days the what people would go out and do is they would shoot birds so when I was growing up in southwest Wisconsin when I was a kid until probably the time I got out of high school I couldn't get closer than say a football field or maybe two football fields from a crow on top on top of a tree it would fly away why because it knew that when people get close they try to shoot it uh -huh. um, I think by the time I was graduating from high school, the crows had figured out people were no longer shooting them. And you could, you could approach a crow at that point. Um, and so now what people will 
attempt to do is try to use non-lethal methods to discourage birds. So there's actually somebody at the University of Florida, Gainesville, who has really pioneered coming up with chemicals that can be either say sprayed on crops that will be distasteful to birds, but then can either be cleaned off or, or humans don't detect. Mm -hmm. um, so they're non-lethal. So for instance, you know, birds don't detect capsaicin. So uh, you can put hot pepper on something to keep squirrels away. So for instance, I have feeders at home where I put out suet that is basically red with hot pepper and the squirrels will not touch it. The birds will eat it just like any old suet. It doesn't bother them at all. And likewise, there are chemicals that, hum that mammals will not detect, but birds do. And so a lot of the emphasis now on trying to, say, persuade birds not to do disservices is through non-lethal methods like that. So great question. So we had one final fun one before we let you depart. and. So for you, what is paradise if you're a bird ecologist? Somewhere like Costa Rica, Brazil, Indonesia, Wisconsin? <laughs> wow, bird paradise. I don't think there is a single answer to that question. <laughs> so even for, for me, I, I would probably... So, oh gosh, this is like my younger daughter a while ago. It's okay, Dad, I want the top 10 birds. And I said, <laughs> the top 10? <laughs> I, Only ten. I, I don't, first of all, I don't think I can stop at ten, and I'm not sure that I can name number one. You know, it's like, so I, uh, but, but yeah, but I mean, uh, yeah, certainly Costa Rica is a bird paradise, without a doubt. Um, I have my own, you know, sort of personal places I like to go to bird. Um, some of them are in, you know, sort of un, you know, unlikely places like the suburbs of Chicago. I just get great joy out of seeing, you know, certain birds in like these really unusual circumstances. Um, so I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm too easy to please, I think. I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> just give me a bunch of birds and I'll be in paradise. <laughs> and apparently a couple of beers to get you to record a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Um, uh, well, I very yeah. much enjoyed speaking to yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it a whole lot. I have a sex-linked color deficiency, mm -hmm. and uh, it's very common in men, so it's red-green color deficiency. And so I'm not totally red-green color blind, but I am deficient. And on certain situations, I really have a hard time seeing certain combinations of colors. So when I started working at the Morton Arboretum, they had this 200-acre remnant oak forest. And I wanted to have a grid system set up, so we would wrap plastic flagging around the trees and have like every 25 meters, approximately. So when we say find a nest, you can say, oh, it's at A3 or whatever. So when I got there, they told me, well, there's only certain combinations that you can use. And one of the few was this red and black diagonally striped plastic flagging. So the first year I was working there and I had a field crew, you know, we were one of the things we would do when we weren't actively trying to find nests or census birds doing, 
You know, so later in the day when the birds weren't doing anything useful, we would grid the, the forest. And then so after that, this happened so many times, it's just unbelievable. But I'd be standing next to a tree this big that was wrapped you know, many times around with the red and black tape. And I'd say, okay, anybody see a flag tree? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah, Chris, next to you? <laughs> I mean, this happened day after day, you know, just time after time. And so I finally said, fuck it, we're using fluorescent pink. I don't care what anybody <laughs> says. I cannot see red and black flag, flagging tape. <laughs> do anything else, we should announce the winners of our competition for Taste of Science tickets. Jeffrey West and Jessica McCormick, you both have two tickets to the festival events of your choice. Thanks for playing. More thanks go to Swearwords, the band for giving us the currently featured track Anchor Baby. The incredibly talented Katie Long, who is a member, also happens to be the city coordinator for Taste of Science events in Chicago. Head to tasteofscience.org to find out what she's cooked up there. We are eternally grateful to all of our guests this season, to all of our newly found patrons helping fund our efforts, and last but not least, you, dear listeners, for giving us a reason to keep going. Remember, you can always listen to old episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, this is Palm Bear and two scientists bowing out. Catch you next year. Welcome, ladies and gents, to another. Ep- blah, 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 blah. I'm going to start that again. <laughs>